today, whatever you're facing, that strength is sufficient. Praise the Lord. That was beautiful. I want to praise the Lord as well for that report from our principal, you know, to see our young people out in nature conquering their fears, building camaraderie through team effort. This is an amazing thing. And uh, this trajectory of learning with each other in the spirit of good Christian tutoring and training under the presence of the Lord Himself will transform the lives of our children. And for that, I'm so very, very thankful. This probably is the best eighth grade trip that I've ever heard a report on. And I want to thank our teachers and our principal and our parents as they partner together to remake the image of God in the lives of their children. Let's pray. Father, we've gathered in your house to receive instruction. And we've come to receive comfort and encouragement. So I'm asking now, Lord, may we let you be completely Lord of all things. So do what we need, and may we live for you to glorify your name. Bless us now, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I've entitled my message, The Prophet and the Professor. And I want to begin this morning with a troubling report. I'll be taking this reading from The Independent. Almost half of U.S. millennials don't know, believe, or care if God exists. It's pretty sober. Let me read you just a little bit from the report. More than four in ten millennials in the United States don't know, believe, or care if God exists, according to Arizona Christian University Research. A report produced by the university's Cultural Research Center concluded that the generation of Americas currently between 18 and 36 are threatening to reshape the nation's religious parameters beyond recognition, with 43% either atheist or apathetic toward the existence of God. I want everybody to think about that. If I were the devil, I think I'd try really hard to capture the hearts and minds of the parents and the teachers. I think I'd try to make all preachers cowards and have no accountability, no collective conscience in regard to what right and wrong is. And within a generation or two, we could have a society that is altered significantly from what we've understood it to be. Its trajectory could be downright frightening. Now, as I've been thinking this week, as we're in the midst of this series on education reformation, I was struck with the fact that we've been in a culture war for a long time. The thought that crossed my mind is that we've already lost it. The good news is, is that for our own faith community and for our own children, it need not be a total washout. Now, I think it's going to be well-nigh impossible to put the cat back in the hat. As a matter of fact, because we've had such an all-out rebellion against authority of any type, especially biblical moral authority, the final act of authority will be a complete overreach and an abuse of power when we are sufficiently scared enough to give up all of our liberties. And of course, this is what we've seen in the last year. And where we are right now is a, it portends to where we are going. So this morning, I'm inviting you to come as a Berean with a humble heart, ready to wrestle with what I'm about to share, because this is not an attack. It is an observation 
It is a contrast between the spirit and the principles of the Word of God and the inspiration of the spirit of prophecy against where we might have come and where we might be heading. This morning, if you have your Bibles, open them, if you would, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, looking at verse 22. Paul was dealing with a society that was quite full of itself. In some sense, you could have called it postmodern in the sense that it was arrogant. And it had found itself in a situation that was producing dysfunction of the highest order, which made society ripe for the gospel. And of course, this is where we're heading in the 21st century as well. We'll start with verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. I want to assure you, friends, that the natural world is still declaring the glory of God, like Psalm 19 says. The heavens, the firmament. And I'm also here to suggest to you today that the world is worried that the, this little terrestrial ball, this little globe, this little wonder amidst the solar system and the Milky Way, this little bubble of life is in trouble. And whether you believe it's in trouble due to human neglect, greed, and avarice, or whether you believe it's simply wearing out like a garment or some combination thereof, I'm here to assure you today, somewhere down the road in the future, nature is going to quit working. Nature is not just science. It's not just this amazing bang that that started and will work ad infinitum. No, nature is a reflection of the very person of God. It is sustained by God. And there will come a point in time when the greatest fears of man will be a reality. Nature itself will stop working. There was a book written probably 30 or 40 years ago called Silent Spring. Unfortunately, it was somewhat prophetic, I do believe. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. This darkening of the human mind has been going on, perhaps on and off throughout all of time, but certainly with enthusiasm fertilized by self-importance over the last 50 or 60 years. In verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. And I want to contrast that with one of our scripture reading, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God had chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. And then from the book Counsels to Teachers, this quote, If the teachers in our schools would search the Scriptures for the purpose of securing better understanding for themselves, opening their hearts to the light given in the Word, they would be taught of God. This morning, if ever there was a need for us to come back to the simplicity of this childhood dependence upon Jesus, it is today. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. This morning, I want to look at the prophet and the professor. We'll be looking at the life of Nicodemus. Now, if you want to read about Nicodemus, there's only one place you can do it, and that's the Gospel of John. No other Gospel writer talks about this man. Ellen White, however, 
in her various places has referenced to this man, at least in the repetition of her writings, over 500 times. This man has a unique role. He is the first to which the simplest of all lessons are shared in the gospel, and he is one of the last to step up and defend the cause of Christ. The prophet and the professor. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things. Now this morning as we start this, I want us to understand that one of the greatest enemies of the human heart has always been and will always be human pride. There is something about the human mind and the human experience that finds itself reluctant to receive correction. And I wouldn't want to go about a series called Education Reformation without a prayer-dependent humility both in preparation and in deliverance of a message in which one man right at the very center of the culture, the spiritual culture of Israel could be so ignorant. And yet ignorance is the word that must mark the first bit of this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. The thing I think we should also recognize at the very beginning of this is the value of the prophetic voice. Woe be unto the institution. Woe be unto the system. Woe be unto the religion or the society in which there is no prophetic voice. No word that calls people back to true north to the principles as well as the precepts of righteousness. Indeed, this story is the metamorphosis of a Christian educator, a man who was responsible, along with many others, no doubt, but caught up in a system that had seriously lost its way. And I want us to understand that if there's a group of people we ought to be praying for, it is the parents and is the teachers of our young people. Now, I should remind everyone at the beginning of this sermon, which will have more for parents and teachers than perhaps any other subject group, but it would be important for us to be praying for these two groups no matter what, that the one standing before you this morning is a converted Christian man as the result of a teacher. And while I have nothing but eternal indebtedness to this teacher who is now resting in his grave waiting to hear the voice of Jesus, the very nature of teaching is such that if they are not teachers who study for themselves and find deepening conviction in the prophetic voice 
of Scripture and the spirit of prophecy, they could, like all others, find themselves deviating off course, thinking that everything's okay, encountering Christ or one of his, one of his prophets in such a moment is to be startled with the fact that they don't really know how to get to first base. There is a real danger in a postmodern age. There is a real danger lurking in the darkness of the human heart, deceitfully wicked beyond all understanding, that makes itself beyond the touch of reproof, beyond the correction of a corrector. And this morning, I think it would be safe to say that if God could tell Haggai in the post-exilic years after the return of some of the Jews to Jerusalem, the reason you're suffering is because you put money in a bag, but it's got holes on it. You put away grain. You put away wine. You put away all these things, but I come and blow on them. God himself might find himself wrestling with his people to bring the corrections about that would set our feet on the course of life, on the prosperity that we saw attended Josiah, and the promised prosperity that came with Joshua. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. It is very possible that we could find ourselves, like Nicodemus found himself, in a system that has gradually graduated, if that would be an appropriate phrase for Christian education, that has gradually graduated off course. And when it graduates off course, it loses the protection and the provision for prosperity, which is what God promised Joshua in chapter 1 and what attended Josiah when he instituted his reforms. This morning, God is calling each of us to be humble enough to hear the voice of the great prophet Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. And that, that voice comes to us in many ways. Certainly, the prompt from the pulpit this morning is only that. For indeed, there stands behind us, enshrined on the walls of this sanctuary, the assurance that God would not leave his end-time people without prophetic guidance, prophetic comfort, and sometimes prophetic correction. What we see in this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus is a man who does not understand that he himself is in need of this divine restoration. And so for all that could be shared in the first 10 verses of John chapter 3, one thing is clear. The elemental humility of dependence on God and the reception of the gift that can come only from God is the starting place for all of us. Now listen, I was just reading last night with my family and family worship. What is the Sabbath for? Well, I'm not going to focus on many things, but when you come up to the Sabbath, one of the things that the Sabbath is for is to look back on the week and see if it was spiritual advancement or spiritual retreat. Was it spiritual gain or was it spiritual loss? Now I can hardly imagine that we would have Parents or educators who have been trusted with the greatest stewardship of all times, the shaping of a life with the potential of eternity in their hands. Now, obviously, our kids come to a place and a time, and even our adultish children who have made their way past the age of majority and who are living semi-autonomous lives, more autonomous in their mind than in the minds of the parents, for sure, as they pay their bills and take care of their car insurance and provide for their medical needs and make sure the tuition is, is handled. Indeed, various perspectives of how much autonomy exists, there still resides in the heart of a parent 
an obligation, a fiduciary responsibility, an inherently responsible role that they can't be exempted from. And once they hold that little baby in their arms, from that point forward, they are not released until they've lost their mind or laid down in the dust of the earth. This morning, it could hardly be imagined in my mind that parent or teacher would be too busy not to pray that the angels would drive back the forces of evil from the home, the classroom, and the heart of children. And that they would not be in this deep partnership understanding the ascendancy of darkness in the 21st century and the need for Christ himself to come down and raise up a standard. Christ himself come into the midst of our homes, our cultures created in our institutions, and the hearts of our children. Nicodemus, somewhere along the way, has become so confused that he refuses to acknowledge Jesus for who he is, and Jesus refuses to engage in a conversation of mutual complementariness. As a matter of fact, Nicodemus has seen Jesus, if you read John chapter 2, cleanse the temple. There were some that knew it needed to be done, and there were some that were offended that it was done. But I want to assure you today, the same two groups of people exist. They exist in this very room. They exist in the institutions where we send our children. There's two groups. One is willing to be moved by the Holy Spirit, and one will resist. And if you think those two groups don't exist today, then you need to do a little more reflecting on life. Nicodemus understood it was a travesty what was going on in the precincts of the holy court. And he was moved by the power that was visible in the expressions of Jesus. But he was not moved enough to declare that he was openly interested in learning more from this uneducated peasant Galilean. So he comes at night. Yes, this sense of human pride, this identity dynamic, which we find operating all through Scripture, makes many afraid to be who God has called them to be. And while it takes much wisdom, the wisdom that Nicodemus exercises is not always real wisdom because we come to the end of his life and the book Desire of Ages makes it very clear that he knew he had lost much by not associating with Jesus sooner. Now, I don't want to take the complex like a subject of reform and make it too terribly simple. If ever there was a call to prayer, if ever there was a call to wisdom, this is the time, this is the hour. But indeed, there will always be two groups of people. Some will respond and some will not. The Holy Spirit's at work today every bit as much as the Holy Spirit was at work in that age. And God is still drawing people to himself. Speaking of Nicodemus, the writer of the Desire of Ages says, he himself had felt there was a lack of spirituality among the Jews, that to a great degree they were controlled by bigotry and worldly ambition. Hardly the pedigree of description that you'd want to be stated about the collective whole of the mindset of the leading teachers of the nation. And since hearing Jesus, Nicodemus had anxiously studied the prophecies relating to the Messiah. And notice this phrase especially, Desire of Ages 168.2. The more he searched, the stronger was his conviction. There are plenty of parents and plenty of teachers listening to me here today, and some whose responsibilities are much larger than that. 
The more you study, if you study in the simplicity of the Holy Spirit, the deeper your convictions will grow. And yet I need to make sure you understand the backdrop against this conversation. The backdrop is the call of John the Baptist, to which Nicodemus was an uncooperative member of the congregation. Jesus is going to make it very clear in this narrative that unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, you're not going to see the kingdom. And the pride of Nicodemus was such that he was not going to submit himself to that which the peasants were flocking to the prophet to. But I need to remind you today, folks, that uneducated does not mean unintelligent. Could anyone say amen? Uneducated does not mean unintelligent. Uneducated does not mean unenlightened. As a matter of fact, some of the most enlightened people have spent the least amount of time inside the walls of higher learning. And while higher learning can be an enlightened journey in which you get the benefit of both, let us not be confused. Uneducated does not mean unenlightened. It does not mean unintelligent. As a matter of fact, education takes a variety of approaches. This morning, however, my subject matter relates more to the systems of education that we've created. And the fastest way around personal, spiritual, social, maturational development is to be smart and get yourself a degree and make lots of money. Then you don't need your parents. You don't need the church. You don't want anybody telling you what to do. You build your house. You nest, as it were, high up on a ledge, as Isaiah will relate to. But God reminds us it doesn't matter where you put it. The heart-searching message of the Baptist had failed to work. Conviction in the heart of Nicodemus. And we have to remember this was quite a dividing point because when we come to the end of Christ's ministry and they want to trap Jesus, he says to them, you tell me, John the Baptist, was the baptism of God or was it of men? You see, Baptist, John the Baptist, that is, was quite a divider. And in this nighttime conversation with Nicodemus, one author says, Jesus spoke with such solemn dignity in both look and tone, and he expressed such earnest love that Nicodemus was not offended as he realized his humiliating condition. Here's a word for every reformer. Can you love the ones who resist you in reformation? And do you care about their dignity sufficiently to not make them feel small in their ignorance? This is a high task. It is a huge hurdle. After the encounter with Jesus, he searched the Scriptures in a new way, not for a discussion of a theory, but in order to receive life for the soul. He began to see the kingdom of heaven as he had submitted himself to the teaching of the Holy Spirit. The first thing I want you to see about John the Baptist, he was drawn. Some were not. Those listening to me this morning or listening online or listening in the future, you need to understand. This work will draw some and it will repel others. The second thing we know, need to know about, John, about Nicodemus is that he would go on to defend Jesus. Take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 7. He did not decide to live openly for Jesus, but he would find himself defending Jesus. And I don't have time to dwell largely in these uh, narrative here, in these verses. Verse 45, it says, The officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to him, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, 
Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You've not also been led astray, have you? None of the rulers of the Pharisees have believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Of course, in the little group that's listening is Nicodemus, verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You're also not from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And listen to this commentary, Desire of Ages, page 460. In the full tide of their discussion, they were suddenly checked. Now imagine the disparity of the two groups that are talking. You have the temple soldiers said to arrest Jesus. They don't know anything. They might be as ignorant as the regular rabble, according to the Pharisees. But they go and they listen to Jesus, and they just cannot lay hands on him. And they come back and they testify of the impress of the Holy Spirit. So the disparity of the groups is huge. There was already direct authority held in the hands of the Pharisees towards the temple guards. But now imagine when the temple guards have to come back and say, we didn't do what you said. There's already this this arrogant looking down your nose mentality of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so here you have them talking down to the temple guard, and the temple guard doesn't really know what to do. They're stuck between their convictions and the power of the Spirit manifest in the life of Christ and their boss or bosses. So in the full tide of their discussion, they were suddenly checked. Nicodemus gets in the game. Nicodemus questioned, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him? Silence fell on the assembly. There's an awkward moment. The full tide of arrogance is washing over the ignorant temple guards. They're being humiliated. They didn't do what they were told and they're going to pay. But somebody steps in and he checks it. Silence falls on the assembly. The words of Nicodemus came home to their consciences. They could not condemn a man unheard. But it was not for this reason alone that the haughty rulers remained silent gazing at him who dared to speak in favor of justice. They were startled and chagrined that one of their own number had been so far impressed by the character of Jesus as to speak a word in his defense. Recovering from their astonishment, they addressed Nicodemus with cutting sarcasm. Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Listen, friends, the darkness that was in their minds was evidenced by the arrogance and the sarcasm in which they turned on the opposition. When you get into a dialogue with someone and they've got to go mean and nasty, you can be certain of this, they're walking in darkness. And you need to let their criticism slide into the darkness from which it came. Let's go to the last segment. Not only does Nicodemus defend Jesus, eventually he decides to live openly for Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 39. And this is what the Scriptures say. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Here's the truth of the matter. Nicodemus, when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross remembered the words spoken 
by Jesus that night on the Mount of Olives, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. A clearer light now illuminated His mind, and the words which Jesus had spoken to Him were no longer mysterious. He felt that he had lost much by not connecting himself with the Savior during his life. And now he recalled the events of Calvary, the prayer of Christ dying for his murderers, and his answer to the position of the dying thief. Again he looked upon the Savior in his agony, and he heard that last cry, It is finished, spoken like the words of a conqueror. And again he beheld the earth reeling, the darkened heavens, the rent veil, the shivering rocks, and his faith was forever established. The very event that destroyed the hopes of the disciples convinced Joseph and Nicodemus of the divinity of Christ. Glory, hallelujah. The fears were overcome by a courage and a firm, unwavering faith. And in this emergency, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to the help of the disciples. Both of these men were members of the Sanhedrin, and they were acquainted with Pilate. Both were men of wealth and influence, and they determined that the body of Jesus should have an honorable burial. Amen is right. You see, friends, Nicodemus told this story to John himself. Nicodemus is in the beginning, the first lessons of the gospel. He was drawn and he responded. Listen, friends, Jesus is drawing all of us today into a journey of recommitment. Nicodemus had not accepted the call to repentance that was given by John. And Jesus reminded him that he was a sinner just like everybody else. And that unless he submitted to the call to repentance and the gift of renewing through the Spirit, he would not see the kingdom of God. This is the goal. This is the point of Christian education. It is the role of the parents with which the teachers are to cooperate. And it is the role of the church which is to call all to this element of simple obedience. I read to you this morning from the last three or four chapters out of the book Education, which are all directed at teachers. Great is the responsibility of those who take upon themselves the guidance of a human soul. The true father and mother count theirs a trust which they can never, from which they can never be wholly released. The life of the child, from his earliest to his latest day, feels the power of that tie which binds him to the parent's heart. The acts, the words, the very look of the parent continue to mold the child for good or for evil. And the teacher shares this responsibility. He needs constantly to relate or to realize its sacredness and to keep in view the purpose of his work. What is the purpose of our work? The purpose of our work is to cooperate with the parents for the reproduction of the beauty of Jesus in the life of the child. The purpose of the work, according to Education Chapter 1, is to help the child develop the joy of serving. It is to teach the child the duty and the destiny of the obligation of being created in the image of God, renewed by the power of the cross, and promised restoration with the soon coming of Jesus. Yes, our work is to declare to a dark age the glorious light and beauty of holiness, the functionality, the fragrance, and the fruitfulness of a life filled with Christ. And indeed, if ever there was a day in which we need a cooperation between parent, teacher, and church, it's today. 
If ever there was a day in which the prophet and the professor must come together for this meeting, and by the way, prophets and professors have oftentimes very distinct difference in temperaments, but both of them must come together in such a way that the child's best chance of winning is realized in the cooperation of both that voice which calls cadence for holiness and also encouragement in difficulty and also confidence in conflict. You see, the saddest thing will be, friends, the saddest thing will be is that someday, because this book says, as a matter of fact, I took my bookmark out, but this book says, heaven is a school. Last chapter of the book. Heaven is a school. Its field of study, the universe. Its teacher, the infinite one. The idea that somebody would miss out on sitting in a classroom in the University of the New Jerusalem, listening to the master teacher of the universe, who that night with Nicodemus looked like a peasant Galilean, uneducated, itinerant preacher, talking to one who didn't understand the simplest, the first base of salvation, and yet so kindly redirecting him. You see, friends, the saddest thing would be somebody did not graduate to that higher course of study with that higher teacher and that higher joy. Do we need wisdom? We do. Do we need the work of the Spirit? We do. Do we need the patience of the saints? We do. Do we need the wisdom of the sages and the ages? We do. But we must come back to the fact that we also need the professors to hear the voice of the prophets and let God do what he would to reestablish the vitality of this church, this mighty movement, and the hope of life eternal. May God help parent, professor, and pastor to join in this glorious work. And may no one be able to stand against us. May prosperity attend us. And may the great hope of seeing Jesus face to face nerve and energize us. Amen and amen. Please stand and sing with us our closing song, hymn 312, Near the Cross.
Father, thank you for the tenderness of Jesus who would so earnestly speak with Nicodemus that the embarrassment at his ignorance would not cause him to flee away. We need your spirit to do a work no human could do. We need you to come down, Lord, and give us the sweetness, the beauty, the earnestness, the kindness, and the humility that would give your message a hearing. We need you to contend with those who contend with us so that our children could be saved. We pray forgive us when we have inadvertently turned aside and put our children's feet through an improper permissibility on paths that are soul-destroying. And we're asking, Lord, that in that forgiveness, you would give us clear light, resolve, and partnership in your presence as we walk the narrow way. And we're praying for the prosperity, Lord, that only you can bring. We confess it. We can't create it. We can't strategize it. We can't achieve it. But you've promised it in partnership with us. So I'm praying, Lord, send every Christian educator here and every Christian administrator here special encouragement. Send them partners in ministry like Sutherland and McGann. And I'm praying, Lord, may two be better than one and may you be the third that creates the thirdfold strand that creates the strength of something that can't be broken. Nervous, Lord, renew our hearts. Bless our children. Fulfill the promise of Malachi 4 to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And now, Lord, may we not reject the prophetic voice. Draw us. Heal us. Save us. Thank you for hearing us on this beautiful Sabbath day. We look to you now for a great work of revival in anticipation and excitement. In Jesus' name, amen.